Thank you, Boo. We appreciate that and hope, uh, hope that all of you guys at home uh, are, uh, are comfortable and ready. I just want to share a couple things with you today. Uh, you know, one of the things that you got to think about as a Christian, we are Christ followers, right? And we are, we are out there doing our best in life to serve and to walk as Christ would have walked. And, and one of my questions has been this last week is, what would Jesus do right now if he were living in our world? Truthfully, uh, Jesus lived at a time and in a place where there was a lot of, of difficult things going on. In the ancient world, in the first century, there was a lot of sickness. There was a lot of uh, debilitating disease and brokenness. Quite frankly, they didn't have the health care that we have today to deal with it. And so Jesus was surrounded by a lot of these things. And Jesus, Jesus didn't choose a simple life. Jesus didn't choose to go through this life in a place of royalty or in a place of comfort and strength. As we all know, Jesus was born to a peasant family, born in a common working class home. He spent 30 years of his life there uh, just living a regular life. And so Jesus is familiar with the kinds of things that we're, that we're dealing with right now. So how would Jesus have dealt with something like this? You know, I find it interesting that John writes much, much years after Jesus had gone back to heaven, John writes something in 1 John, and if you have your Bibles, turn with me there. 1 John, the second chapter, he picks up in verse number five or so, and, and he, he's talking about what it means to be a Christian, what it means to be a Christ follower, and, and, and I'll read it with us. He says, but if anyone obeys his word, love for the God is truly made complete in them. This is how we know we are in him. Whoever claims to live in him must live as Jesus did. So what, what John's just simply reminding us of is that right now we are, we are called to live as Jesus would live in the midst of a place of fear, in the midst of a time of uncertainty, in the midst of a world that in many ways is turns up, turned upside down. For those of us that are Christians, this is a particularly difficult time because some of our routines are shifted. We're, we're no longer gathering together in small groups uh, on Wednesday nights, on Tuesday nights, and in women's Bible studies. We're no longer able to gather together as a large family on Sunday morning to encourage one another and to lift one another up. But the truth is that we have the same responsibility now as we've always had, and that is to live for Christ, to live as Christ would have, have lived. So we're going to talk a little bit about that this morning. What does it mean to walk as Christ would walk, to live as Christ would have lived? What does it mean to live like Jesus for us today? You know, we oftentimes think that when we go through these periods of time, and I'm certain probably for most of you, if you're like us that are gathered here today, this whole situation is kind of starting to sink in. At first, it was kind of something new. And it was, it was a lot of uncertainty and a lot of confusion. And now it's starting to become routine. And this past week, I had several people that just in passing and in conversation through texts or phone calls said something like, you know, this is, this is starting to kind of become discouraging. How long is this going to last? What's actually going to happen here? And those are all great questions that we don't necessarily have answers to, do we? And... You know, sometimes we think, well, I'm all alone. Uh, everyone else is probably up, and I'm the only one who's a little discouraged. I'm the only one who's a little frightened by what I see on the news. I, 
I'm the only one who's a little, a little depressed because I haven't been able to go out and to do the things that I, that I want to do and I would like to do. Years ago, I, I read the story of Mother Teresa. Many of you guys know her. She was a, a lady that was called to go and help leprosy patients in Calcutta, India. And because of that, she really became a kind of a world figure for helping out people that were in great need. And when I think of Mother Teresa, I always think of somebody who is constantly upbeat and uh, could never, uh, an optimism that was never daunted. But just months after receiving the Nobel Peace Prize for her work, Mother Teresa wrote a letter to one of her close mentors. And I just want to read a little excerpt from this letter because I think it kind of helps us to realize that even people who are doing great things, amazing things, go through times where, well, we feel like maybe God is, is a little bit farther away than we would like for him to be. Listen to me. She, she writes this to a friend. She said, Jesus has a very special love for you, but as for me, the silence and emptiness is so great that I look and I do not see. I listen and I, I don't hear. The tongue moves in prayer but does not speak. I want you to pray for me that I might let him have a free hand. If you read through her biography, she speaks of times like of dryness and of darkness. I'm told that God loves me, and yet, in reality, the darkness and coldness and emptiness is so great that nothing touches my soul. When we think of her, we think of somebody who's completely always up on cloud nine, completely dedicated to the work that she had to do, but in reality, she's human. We're human. And this season of pandemic is, is difficult on all of us. You know, I thought this week as I read the story of Christ's betrayal and, and subsequent arrest and all the things that he went through is we're kind of preparing our minds for the celebration of Jesus' resurrection. I thought, you know, Jesus, Jesus walked a path that was extremely difficult as well. So many things that we could look at that, that were a challenge, and especially that time that Jesus sat down with the disciples at the Last Supper. Clearly, things did not look good for Team Jesus, if you will. One of his closest disciples was about to sell him out for a fairly small sum of money. Another one of his disciples was going to, in a matter of a few hours, swear that he had never known who Jesus was. And all the disciples, in one form or other, would, would abandon him and they would leave him. And yet, how does Jesus react to this crisis? How does Jesus react to that darkness? How does Jesus react to those frustrating situations? I can tell you how I might have acted. I might have become disgusted. I might have lashed out. I might have had a loss of focus or determination. But Jesus, well, Jesus did four very real things that I think that we can do today so that we might walk as Jesus walked. The first one of those things is that Jesus was simply calm and dependent. Jesus walked in calm dependence. He's completely focused on, on how God was working and not necessarily the current situation. One thing that you notice as you read through the story of Jesus in the New Testament is he never lost 
the, the understanding that God was fully in control. There's a story that's told of, of a Confederate general in the, in the Civil War. His name was Samuel Watkins, and he was, um, excuse me, Samuel Watkins, who was a private in the, in, the, uh, in the Confederate Army, tells this story, and he was close. He was actually assigned to working with the general. The general's name was John Bell Hood. And, and he was losing his last battle. Um, but as the men were coming to him for guidance and for strength, he was actually losing his composure. According to Private Watkins, he writes this. He said, no sadder sight had ever occurred. And had you seen the things that this young man had seen in the, in the Civil War, this is quite something. The Civil War was a bloody and terrible war. There were a lot of broken uh, men that had no way to be treated. And yet he looked back at this particular scene and said this was the saddest moment of anything that I experienced in the war. He said the general openly wept. He ranted. He raved. With his one remaining arm, he pulled tufts of hair from his own head. And General Hood's response to the stress of the war sent a message to all the soldiers that, that were on the battlefield with him, and they lost hope, and they ran. There was one person the night that Jesus was betrayed who did not lose hope and who did not run, and that was Jesus. Jesus remained steadfastly fixed on his purpose, and we recognize it was because he was completely dependent on the strength of the Father. In fact, Jesus, in comforting the disciples in John, the 14th chapter, says these words. He says, let not your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. If we were to translate that into a modern day phrase, we would probably say something like, don't worry about it. <laughs> I've got this. My father has got this. Believe in God and believe in me. Paul writes to the Philippians in Philippians, the fourth chapter, simply these words. He said, rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say, rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. I like this last part. The Lord is near. Jesus, no matter what he was facing, no matter the level of stress that he came across, kept a hold of his composure, his gentleness, his kindness, and his confidence that God was in control of all things. Not only, though, was Jesus quietly confident, but Jesus was faithfully serving people. <laughs> it's a if anybody needed cheering up in this particular dark hour of Jesus' life, it would have been him. And yet the funny thing is, is that it's Jesus that is, in fact, cheering on the disciples and encouraging the saints. Immediately following um, the, the meal um, and all the things that went on with that, he follows it up in John's 16th chapter in verses 31 through 33, and he says to them, be of good cheer. Guys, it's all good because I've overcome the world. Don't worry about what's about to happen. I've got this. Isn't it wonderful to, this morning that no matter where we are, separated because of a, a pandemic in our country, no matter what we might be worried about, concerned about, what might have, the, have attracted our focus, that we can confidently say, 
that our Savior's got this. Jesus tells the disciples, be of good cheer. I've overcome the world. I'm handling those things that are, well, really important. So can, can I just talk to all of you guys scattered around Acadiana and maybe around the United States today? I, I just want to talk to you a little bit about, about service because it's really a key part of what it means to be a Christian. A lot of times we, we talk about going to services, right? And we're obviously talking about coming to church. But in reality, we're called to serve each and every day. We are the hands and the feet of Jesus. Now, Jesus is the head of the church, right? But we are the moving parts, the serving parts, the doing parts of the body of Christ. Jesus would be busy serving and doing and caring for people right up until the moment that he were to close his eyes in death. But what are we doing right now? There can be a temptation for us to kind of draw within ourselves, to draw within our family, and to only look after the needs of the very people that are in our house or in our immediate circle of influence. But I want to ask you to resist that temptation today. I want to ask you to recognize that while we may not be able to physically gather and we may not be able to physically meet needs, there are a lot of needs that we can still meet. There are a lot of older people who have quarantined themselves because of the danger of this particular pandemic. And in visiting with them, I realize that there's a lot of them that are just lonely right now. A lot of them are used to getting out and going to the grocery store, going to exercise, visiting with friends, drinking coffee, and all those activities that kind of were the things that their day and schedule were built around have disappeared. A lot of them were very social people coming to church services, hanging out until 9 o'clock at night on a Wednesday night, eating and sharing a meal together. All those things are no longer things that's safe for them to participate in. And the quietness of their home is rather discouraging. Guys, we have an opportunity. You can pick up a phone this week. Call one of, those, one of the older folks that are a part of the church family. Maybe a grandma or a grandpa, aunt or an uncle. Maybe somebody that always says hi to you on a Sunday morning. If that person pops into your mind this week, I want to challenge you to grab your phone or to write a note and to make a call to that person. I'm going to guess that they're going to be extremely happy that you made that effort. There's other ways that we can serve as well, and we've talked about some of these, but if you are in need of things from the store and you don't feel like you can go out and get those because of this situation, there's a lot of people that have their name on a list here at Forest Park, and they would love to help you. They'll figure out the payment arrangements with you. They'll go to the store and they'll get those things. They'll set them outside of your house or wherever you're comfortable. Um, to make sure that you have the things that you need. And there's a lot of other people that are serving and doing things in other ways as well. Jesus said, be of good cheer. I've overcome the world. Jesus was also focused on ministry. He was focused on the victory that was at hand. The writer of Hebrews writes this in Hebrews 12 and verse 2. I like to share this passage often because this is an inspirational piece of scripture. The writer of Hebrews says this. It says, looking to Jesus, and that's our job, right? We're patterning, out, patterning rather, our response to everything going on here 
after what Jesus did. And so the writer of Hebrews reminds us of what he did. It says, looking to Jesus, the founder and the perfecter of our faith, the one who did it right, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is now seated at the right hand of the throne of God. I want you to notice one part of that passage. It says, who for the joy set before him. You know, there's a temptation for us right now to, to focus on the things right in front of us, on the things that are kind of miserable, on the things that we cannot do, and to allow those things to completely captivate our attention. But the writer of Hebrews gives us a secret. They said that Jesus was successful in accomplishing his mission because he was focused on the victory that lied, lay ahead. He was focused on the joy of knowing that you and I would be saved from our sins. Had Jesus just focused on the cross and on the betrayal and on the people that were going to run away from him, he would have no doubt collapsed under the pressure of that. But Jesus chose to look at the other side, to see what was coming, to see what God would do with the painful situation that, that he was now going through and recognize that God was working to enact a perfect plan of salvation for all of us in this broken world. John 16 and verse 33, another part of that text that we read a little bit earlier, Jesus builds, he said, these things I have spoken to you that in me you may have peace. Today, guys, if, if we're not in a place of peace, it may be that our relationship with Jesus Christ is not as strong or not as close as it should be. Jesus said that, that it's through me that you have peace, recognizing that I've got this, that I've overcome these things. And Jesus recognizes that life here is difficult. He said, in this world, you're going to have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. I have taken care of this. You notice something about Jesus. He never stresses out. <laughs> Running the universe, <laughs> that is something that he can handle. The conditions on this planet don't rile him. Our problems and failures don't overthrow his plan. In fact, he works around them every single day. Jesus is more than enough to successfully handle this problem and all of our problems, a hostile world and the whole creation. And as we close, I want to just share one more thing that Jesus, that Jesus did. And that is that Jesus prayed, but he prayed with confidence. Jesus went high up on a mountain one day to have some alone time with God. He took along three of his closest disciples, Peter, James, and John. The purpose of their going there was for something that we now call the transfiguration. On top of that mountain, Jesus' true glory would be revealed, and he would have conversations with saints that had been long, had been long dead. But meanwhile, down in the valley, back at the ranch, the remaining nine disciples were tasked with carrying on the rest of the responsibilities of the ministry of Jesus while he was away with the inner three up on the mountainside. And descending on the following day, Jesus encountered a situation that was in, well, in a, in a bad place there in the valley. Let me just read it to you. It's in Matthew, the 17th chapter, starting out in verse 14 or so. You're welcome to follow along there at home. 
It says that when they came to a crowd, a man came up to him and kneeling before him said, Lord, have mercy on my son, for he has seizures and he suffers terribly, for often he falls into the fire or into the water. And I brought him to your disciples and they couldn't heal him. By this time, Jesus' ministry had gained widespread notoriety. And so people recognized that Jesus was able to do things that no other teacher, no other rabbi, no other prophet could do. He was healing people of things and driving out demons in ways that attracted tension both far and wide. You might remember that Jesus had given that ability both to his disciples and the 72 who had gone out. And so, so this man came and he found the disciples and he said, look, here's the situation. But they had not been successful in accomplishing the mission. In verse 17, Jesus turns to the disciples as I envision it in my mind's eye, and he says, O faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you? How long have I, have, have I got to show you guys how to deal with this? And then he goes on to say, how long am I to bear with you? The truth is that sometimes we kind of frustrate Jesus. The disciples kind of frustrated Jesus. He was human. But I want you to notice what he goes on and does here. He says, bring that boy here to me. And Jesus rebuked the demon, and it, it came out of him, and the boy was healed instantly. There's a powerful precedent here. It really has nothing to do with our sermon this morning, but, but the precedent, precedent is that when God heals, when Jesus heals, it's not a temporary thing or a partial thing. It's a complete thing, and it happens almost instantly. But look at the difference in response right here, right? So Jesus shows up and starts to talk with the, with this, with the disciples, and then he, he renounces the demon, and the boy is immediately healed, whereas the disciples, they had struggled with this. Now later the disciples are going to come and they're going to have a conversation with Jesus down in verse number 19. <laughs> and they're concerned about what, well, any of us would have been concerned about. Jesus, how were you able to handle that situation? And we, well, we didn't. We failed. The disciples came to Jesus privately and they said, why could we not cast it out? And he said to them, because of your little faith, for truly I say to you, if you have faith like the grain of a mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, move from here and go there, and it will move. Nothing will be impossible for you. The difference between, well, the apostles' petitions and Jesus' petitions was one of confidence. When Jesus came to the Father, he came to the Father confidently. The disciples came and they were kind of, sort of convinced that God could take care of this situation. The last challenge that I have for all of us today is that we might, well, we might pray with that same confidence. I've been so thankful to hear our governor in the state here of Louisiana openly ask and appreciate the prayers of the faith community and churches in Louisiana. I was impressed to see that our governor called upon everybody to a, a season of fasting on Tuesday afternoons and prayer for this situation. And I appreciate the fact that the governor of our state recognizes the power of prayer and the importance of God in this situation. And I hope that all of us as the faith family, as a church family here at Forest Park, and maybe wherever else we are scattered around the world, that we recognize that prayer isn't just something that we do when there's nothing else to do. 
But prayer is that thing that gives us actual answers. We have an opportunity to approach the throne of grace with confidence, recognizing that that God is working and that God does hear us. And while maybe God's work and God's answers are not always what we would want them to be, and maybe they're not as immediate as what we see here in this story, and as Jesus just immediately rebukes the spirit and the boy is immediately healed, we would love for that to work like that. (laughs) God is still as faithful and powerful today as he ever was. When we pray, we're commanded to pray with, with faith, not being blown and tossed about by doubt. We will all face hardship, and we will all go through difficult seasons as this father did. And I want to share with you one last passage that comes in Philippians, the fourth chapter. We know this in verses 6 and 7. We often quote it. But I think it's important for us to mention again because it is, well, it is our marching orders as Christians. It says, be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your request may known, be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds through Christ Jesus. Let me just take a minute and break this passage down. First of all, he says, be anxious about nothing. And I think there's a lot of us right now that are very anxious about a lot of things. It's not that Paul doesn't appreciate the fact that there's serious situations in the world. Paul, of all the apostles, recognized that there were life and death situations every day, and he saw that. But it was how chose or Paul chose to deal with those situations. It's remarkable here. He said, I'm not going to get anxious. I'm not going to become worried. I'm not going to become stressed. Rather, I'm going to take everything to God in prayer. By prayer and supplication, or some of our versions probably say petition, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. Let me ask you this. What are some things today that you're thankful for? I challenge you to take some time. Just focus on some of those things. What are the things that, even in this time where things are kind of in an upheaval, when there's a lot of negatives that we can point fingers at, what are the things that are positives in your life? Make a list of those things. Share with those things with God in prayer. When Jesus modeled the model prayer, he is thanksgiving portion of that was a substantial amount of his prayer. Paul said, I'd bring everything with prayer and petition to God with thanksgiving. And then he says, why? And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds through Christ Jesus. Church, if we're not careful, this constant diet of fear and anxiety can destroy faith. But Jesus doesn't want that for us. He wants for us to have that peace and that patience. He wants our hearts to be guarded and our minds to be protected through our faith in Jesus Christ. This past week, uh, Michelle read for me a post of a gentleman up in Indiana, a friend of my Uncle Dave and Aunt Karen's who contracted the coronavirus and subsequently would pass away from that. One of the things I thought was so special was his final kind of Facebook post. His Facebook post was, trust God. I'm summarizing it, but that was pretty much it. Trust God because I am. And there was just a certain peace and a certain 
for lack of better term, okayness with what he knew would be inevitable. We get that when we have the kind of prayer life that Jesus had. We'll all go through many valleys. We'll all go through many struggles. This is, well, another one of those. But as, as, as uh, Paul said to the philosophers on the hill in Athens in Acts the 17th chapter, and I like it, I think it's really important, he said, he is not far away, speaking of God, from each one of us. God is near today. And at this time in the service, I would like to just invite all of us to remember the nearness of God. In a moment, Brad Onslay is going to come and he's going to lead our hearts in a communion devotion. A time where we realize that we are not alone in this world, but we are surrounded by Christians all throughout the world, some of whom we will never know, whose faces we will never see this side of eternity, but who trust the Lord just as much as all of us do. And that little piece of bread and that little cup of juice remind us that we are all connected to one another. Even if we're not physically together, we are connected to one another through the body and the blood of Jesus Christ. So if you want to grab your communion emblems, your bread and your juice, we'll welcome Brad Onsley at this time as we celebrate together the breaking of bread, the remembrance of Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection.